My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights Church. We are at the midpoint of a sermon series through the book of Lamentations. The book of Lamentations was written shortly, before, sh- shortly after the destruction of Jerusalem, Israel's capital city by the Babylonians. And the book is comprised of five poems, each poem lamenting Israel's ruin. And notably, throughout these lamentations, God remains silent. And yet, in the midst of brokenness, the author comes to trust that God is accomplishing something beautiful. And so these lamentations are an excellent resource for us um, for prayer and devotion, especially in the midst of suffering. When suffering comes and God seems silent, these poems help us to pray. They give us words. They teach us to trust in God, to grow our faith, and to place our trust in Christ. As Carlos said, we've got 66 verses to cover today, so I'm, um, I'm planning on covering about one verse every minute. Um, that's right. I'm just kidding. We're, we're going to have to move through our passage rather quickly, but hopefully um, this chapter of Scripture will be a resource for you for many years to come. Before we get started, though, I, I wanted to take a moment to fill you in on what this past week has been like for my family and me. Uh, first of all, you need to know that I finished, I finished writing this sermon on Tuesday. Uh, Our plan was to visit my family in Nacogdoches while our kids were on spring break, and so by Tuesday, um, sermon was pretty much ready to go. Then, on Wednesday morning, as we were getting ready to leave Houston, I got a call from my mom. Um, She told me that my sweet little cousin, Kelly, who at the time was 38 weeks pregnant, Um, had gone to the doctor for a routine appointment and and the baby had no heartbeat. And so on Thursday, most of my extended family waited, heartbroken, as Kelly labored to deliver a stillborn baby boy. And yet, Kelly's five-year-old daughter, Cora, bravely insisted on meeting and holding her baby brother. It was, it was tragic. It still is tragic. It was, it's lamentable. And yet something about it was strangely redemptive because even in the midst of pain and suffering, there was love and unity and family and hope and faith. And I tell you that because I've made a conscious decision not to alter my sermon as it stood on Tuesday, um, apart from this update, obviously. But why? Well, as I, I, I hope we'll come to see, Jeremiah 3 teaches us to purposefully recall God's love and goodness even in the midst of suffering. And I've, I've wrestled with God over the past few days And so I wanted to give Tuesday me an opportunity to remind Sunday me of God's steadfast love and goodness. 
In fact, I want that for my entire family, and I want that for you. So let's get started. By way of introduction, allow me to assert something. For the atheist, suffering is unredeemable. At its deepest level, atheism denies that suffering can have any redemptive power at all. Christians, on the other hand, believe that some of the best, most beautiful blessings God can give to his children are given through the crucible of pain and suffering. In fact, Jesus, the hero of our faith, right, he saved us and blessed us eternally by willingly being tortured to death. So the cross, the cross is the ultimate example of the redemptive power of suffering. Contrast that Christian perspective on suffering with these quotes from two prominent atheists. The first is Richard Dawkins. Some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it. Next is from Nisha. To see others suffer does one good. To make others suffer even more. This is a hard saying, but an ancient, mighty, human, all-too-human principle that without cruelty, there is no festival. And so, in other words, apart from God, human beings really struggle to offer a satisfactory philosophy of suffering. For Dawkins, suffering is meaningless. For Nisha, the social value of suffering is that making other people suffer gives you an excuse to throw a party. And one of those quotes is just plain evil, and neither quote is really all that helpful. So if we adopt these atheistic philosophies, we are left, we are left, we are left to avoid pain and suffering at all costs. We need more money, more science, more research, more health care, because pain and suffering must be eradicated. And in the meantime, we need more alcohol and drugs and parties and Netflix because we don't like thinking about pain and suffering and death. But the Bible teaches us, the Bible teaches us to lean in to our suffering like Korah, to lean into our suffering, to lament with hope, and to trust God. Lamentations chapter 3 is the climax and culmination point of this book. Its format is notably different with three times as many verses as the other four chapters, but it's also the only chapter within the book of Lamentations that makes a clear statement of hope, which means Lamentations 3 is a great place to turn in the midst of suffering. We'll get to that in just a bit. As we've seen over the, the last two weeks, chapters 1 and 2, are, they, they give detailed description of Jerusalem's distress and destruction. The author, who most likely the prophet Jeremiah, the author paints a horrifying picture of a city in total chaos, total ruin. It's everyone's worst nightmare. 
It's like living in Dallas. <laughs> so chapters one and two are all about Jerusalem. But chapter three, by chapter three, things start to get personal. Jeremiah begins speaking in the first person, and in verses 1 through 20, he, pre- he presents a personal list of grievances to God. Okay? He has suffered physically. His bones have been broken. He dwells in darkness. God has imprisoned him, rejected his prayers, attacked him like a bear, torn him to pieces like a lion, shot him with arrows, made him an object of scorn, covered him in ashes, and deprived him of all peace and happiness. And we see in verse 18, he is close to giving up on God. He says, my endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. So he's he's driven to despair. All he can see is pain and suffering. And he has lost confidence in God's goodness. He's a man of sorrows. He is God's suffering servant, which is a, a familiar role for great men throughout the Bible. So hang with me here. I'm going to give three examples of suffering servants from the Old Testament. First, Job was a suffering servant. In chapter 16 of the book of Job, he says, Surely now God has worn me out. He has made desolate all my company, and he has shriveled me up, which is a witness against me, and my leanness has risen up against me. It testifies to my face. He has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth at me. My adversary sharpens his eyes against me. Men have gaped at me with their mouth. They have struck me insolently on the cheek. They mass themselves together against me. God gives me up to the ungodly and casts me into the hands of the wicked. Job was a suffering servant. King David was a suffering servant. In Psalm 13, David says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. So King David was a suffering servant. And then in the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah tells of a suffering servant to come. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And so the suffering servant theme is common in the Bible. But here, in the book of Lamentations, chapter 3, 
at the midpoint of this book, we get to see this suffering servant turn back to God in hope. Actually, I think we see him forcing himself, willing himself to believe and remember God's good promises. In verse 21, after listing all the ways in which God has afflicted him, he says, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. I think this is intensely practical for us. It's not practical in the the way that we often want, you know, three steps to lamenting. But it is intensely practical for us because in the midst of pain and suffering, when we are tempted to lose our confidence in God's goodness, we must fight to remember that he is good. We must fight to remember his promises to us, his promises to you. Now, that's easier said than done. It's it's very difficult to trust God in the midst of pain and suffering. And so it helps to have brothers and sisters who can come alongside you and sit with you and pray with you, comfort you, point you to the truth. Sometimes it, it helps to get counseling. But remembering God's goodness in the midst of suffering requires more faith than you had yesterday. And that's the point. Remembering God's goodness in the midst of suffering requires more faith than you had yesterday. And that's the point. That's what distinguishes Christian suffering from Dawkins and Nisha. As Christians suffer, God is growing our faith. and He's deepening our relationship with him. In other words, God, God wants us to pray in the midst of suffering. And really, that's, that's, pretty much what, that's pretty much the definition of lament, praying when you are hurting. God wants to talk to you. He wants intimacy. And he is sovereign enough to take even pain and suffering and turn them into opportunities for deeper spirituality, deeper relationship, and deeper faith. So even when your complaints are misguided and misdirected, even when you're blaming God for something he didn't actually do, he is listening. He loves you enough to hear you out. Even when we're wrong to accuse him, he patiently listens. He took the cross for us, which means that he can handle our simple, short-sighted, finite ramblings. He is our good, loving, gracious, faithful, and attentive Father. Look again at verse 21. God's mercies never come to an end. God's mercies are new every morning. Now, that's always true. That is always true. 
Do you have faith to believe that that is always true? Is it just a a charming yet empty dose of encouragement and positivity? God's mercies are new every morning. Or is that a deep existential truth for you? God's mercies are new every morning. Listen, this is a hard saying, but I, I want you to hear it, and I want you to believe it. God's mercies are new every morning. Every morning. When you lose a loved one, God's mercies are new that day. When your doctor delivers hard news, God's mercies are new that day. That doesn't always feel true, but the Bible's truth does not change on our bad days. And that should be a source of great comfort for us. For those of us who trust in Christ, the the Lord is faithful to meet us every morning with enough mercy and grace to see us through whatever this broken world throws at us. Here at the climax of the book of Lamentations, we're given a glimmer of hope, and it's this. Our heavenly Father loves and cares for each and every child in his family. And so when suffering comes, turn to Lamentations 3. It gives words to our suffering. It helps us to remember God's goodness. When suffering comes, turn here and pray this chapter verse by verse. Eventually, you're going to come to verses 55 to 58. It says, I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit you heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. So we can, we can pray those words to God, believe those words, and let them lead us into worship even in the midst of suffering. So, we must fight to remember God's promise. And God's promise here in the book of Lamentations is the same promise he has for us today. What is it? What is God's promise for us? It's this. God's promise is that hope and salvation will grow out of the soil of suffering and judgment. Hope and salvation will grow out of the soil of suffering and judgment. Because God is sovereign and good, Christian suffering is never meaningless. Christian suffering always serves a purpose, and this was never more true than when Jesus suffered in our place. See, the city of Jerusalem in Lamentations 3 deserved its judgment. Jerusalem had wandered and sinned and worshipped other gods. But Jesus deserved nothing of the judgment he suffered. 
Matthew 27 describes the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and interestingly, there are a few subtle links between Matthew 27 and Lamentations 3. And we we see these links in part through the common use of uncommon words such as gall and derision. Anyway, Matthew alludes to Lamentations 3 in describing the crucifixion which reveals Jesus as the ultimate man of sorrows, the quintessential suffering servant. He suffered for the sins of Jerusalem. In fact, he became the greater Jerusalem. He was broken down and torn apart. He was left in ruins. So that his church could rise with him from the ashes. Let's take a look at Hebrews 12.2. You don't have to turn there, but it says that Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. The joy that was set before him. What joy do you think was set before Christ? What thing could possibly bring Jesus so much joy that he would willingly endure being tortured to death? Let's read Revelation 21, 2-4. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more for the former things that passed away. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So the book of Revelation describes a newly restored Jerusalem, prepared and adorned as the bride of Christ. The book of Lamentations describes the city of Jerusalem as an adulterous widow. The the book of Revelation describes this new Jerusalem as a beautiful and pure bride. The book of Lamentations describes our worst nightmare, and the book of Revelation describes the city of our dreams. So this new Jerusalem is the church, perfect, perfected and eternally beautiful, walking down the aisle to meet the man who sacrificed everything to see that day happen. That is the joy that Jesus had in mind. Jesus stood in the gap for his bride. He took on Jerusalem's disgrace so that Jerusalem could be splendid, so that Jerusalem could be clothed in splendor and beauty. And Jerusalem is us. Because of Jesus, we who once were were left in ruins on account of our sin have been clothed in splendor and beauty. And one day we're going to be with him at last. 
And so in contrast to the, to the best atheistic philosophies of this world, Christian suffering is never meaningless. Christian, when you suffer, God is not punishing you. No condemnation remains for you because Jesus drank the full cup of God's wrath against your sin. Rather, when you suffer, God means to teach you patience and meekness and hope. He is powerful enough to take even the brokenness of this world and turn it into something beautiful. He did that on the cross. He does it every day. And one day he's going to do that once and for all. And so you must always remember, first of all, that your, suf- your suffering is temporary. God the Father hears you when you pray. Christ the Son knows what you're going through. And the Holy Spirit is with you. The new Jerusalem, it's going to be filled with people who having heard this gospel of God's grace, acknowledged their sin and trusted in Jesus for forgiveness. We like to think our lives look like the new Jerusalem. At least that's the image that we project on Facebook. But in reality, our our lives look more like Jerusalem in ruins. And for all the tragedy of suffering, for all the tragedy of suffering, suffering helps us to drop the pretense. Suffering humbles us, and it should lead us to repent. Jesus was left in ruins so that we, his church, could rise with him from the ashes. So repent of your sin and lament with hope Trust in Jesus, join and serve his church, and so prepare yourself for the Jerusalem that is to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. In times of of suffering, it is especially good Uh, to know that your word is steadfast, that your love and goodness are steadfast, that those are eternal character traits of yours. It is good to know that we are your children, members of your household, and that our, our Father is in control of everything. So I, I pray, God, that you would, you would make sojourn a church of men and women who, who suffer well, um, who suffer faithfully, who, who can look back on our suffering and say, uh, I don't want to do it again, but I know God today better than I did yesterday. My faith has grown. Help us to place our hope in the Jerusalem that is to come. And thank you for Jesus Uh, who made that possible for us. It's in his name we pray, amen.